Welcome to Just Want a Quilt, a research podcast coming out of Tulane University Law School. I am Elizabeth Townsend Gard. I'm a law professor. I do all kinds of things, including copyright and trademarks. I also really just want a quilt. Um, this tonight, today's episode is uh, I'm really, really excited about. This is our 2023 season, and today we have Brandon Butler with us um, from University of Virginia. Brandon is um, a rock star. Uh, when it comes to library and fair use, and um, now he has a, opened a firm with another rock star, Peter Yazzie, um, who is, um, they have a fair a firm that focuses on fair use. Um, we talked to him about what is fair use um, and what he's been up to, um, and then in the end he's super nice and says some super complimentary things. We'll talk about that after he says them. Um, also, we... Um, so I live on a street that has a lot of construction, like a lot of construction, um, the street itself. And it, um, this construction started after we started the interview. I'm hoping it doesn't pick up, but if you do hear it, I try to mute as much as I possibly can, but you might hear construction when I'm speaking, and I apologize. Um, this season, we really are talking a lot about copyright. We're also going to talk about trademark as well. Um, so this is part of our sort of more in-depth series of sort of what world does copyright play. And for those of you who are wondering what you can do with patterns when you're in a shop, he talks about that too. It's towards the very end. So let's get it. Let's start the interview and let's talk to Brendan. Brendan is awesome. So I'm Brandon Butler, and I am uh, calling in from Charlottesville, Virginia, in, uh, in beautiful central Virginia. Nice. And what's your first memory of someone sewing or quilting in your life? Ooh, boy. We, let's see. We had, when I was a kid, all of, all, almost all of the blankets we had were sort of homemade blankets by grandmas and aunts and so you know so like i don't i don't think i knew you could get blankets at the store you know <laughs> yeah i like so, that a lot that's quite lovely yeah do you still yeah, have any of them or have they kind of disintegrated oh, over time no no they're around they're around and in fact um i got two really nice uh sort of family heirloom I mean, they're not, they're not precious. I mean, we use them, but yeah. you know, sort of uh, quilts that my great grandmother made oh, just nice. recently from my dad and oh. we're there. My kids, that's my kids use them every day. Oh, I love that. I really like that. I like yeah. not precious because if you like sleeping under something of your grandmother's or great grandmother's or aunt's is really something special about that. So at least from my perspective. Yeah. 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 I agree completely. And my, when my daughter was born and she's my first, my first child, um, a friend of ours made a lovely little, you know, kind of childish quilt um, for her. And that's also that's sort of that's one of those things you put, you know, you put it in a in a box somewhere yeah. and hold on to it, you know, and she'll give it to her kids. I like that. All right. Well, we're here to talk about fair use. So let's go back just a bit. So if we talk about copyright and fair use as part of the podcast, usually towards the end. But today we're going to focus all on that. Um, let's start a little bit about like back up a little bit. Tell me sort of 
Um, I'm sure you didn't dream of being a fair use expert when you were seven. So how did we get here? How did we get to this being like really a focus of what you do? That's a great question. You know, I, I did always, you know, like a lot of people who end up being in, 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 in the legal profession, I did always enjoy, you know, uh, arguing with people and, being, you know, making policy arguments and all that. So I knew I wanted to kind of go to law school. I was pretty sure that or be some kind of uh, philosophy professor or something. And I, I ended up in law school. And then I knew I was interested in like the law of expression, you know, and at first it was the First Amendment. And I wanted to be like, a, I want to be a media lawyer, you know, whatever that is, that's what I want to do. Um, and I wandered my way into being really focused on fair use uh, because my wife is a librarian and I've, we've known each other since high school. Um, and I was hanging out with, when I was in graduate school in philosophy for my abandoned philosophy career, um, she was in graduate school for, for library stuff and, and learning how to conserve books. And I was around librarians a lot and I, sort of imbibed the librarian's interest in copyright um, through osmosis. And then very early in my career, uh, well, I started off as a lawyer during the financial crisis of 2008. And so like a lot of people who started off in that year, I had this very bizarre experience of going to a law firm and getting what I thought was the dream job. And then there wasn't any work right and the law firms were freaking out and figuring out you know we can't mass fire people because that would scare away the next year's crop of fresh law student blood and all this <laughs> stuff so anyway i i found myself basically being offered up by my law firm to a various nonprofits. oh um, i like that like yeah i was like hey can we can we ship this young yep. attorney over to you guys and he'll help you out with whatever media copyright yeah. whatever and, and on the menu of, of nonprofits was the Association of Research Libraries. Oh, love it. Super love it. Yeah. Hold on just a second. The dogs are going insane. I don't want it to be on the, the um, recording. So let me just pause for a second and throw them in a bedroom. Because <laughs> I'm sure there's a cat passing by, um, but I don't uh. want it to be on the recording. Because that's all they protect us from are our strict cats, which is yes. really annoying. But that's okay. Yes. Hold on just a second. And uh, I'll be right no back. Uh, let me pause the recording. Recording stopped. Okay. We'll be right back. I thought they were put away. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Rocky Jasmine, you're being too noisy. Come here. What's going on with you guys? Come on. Let's go upstairs. Recording in progress. So, you're being farmed out to nonprofits. How did you feel about <laughs> yeah. that? How was that work different than the work you would have been doing at a law firm? Oh, it was infinitely more interesting and better in every way. I, I mean, I mean, so I was never a natural law firm creature, probably, and, and I'm sure that's part of why I was uh, on the short list to be farmed out. They could see how um, how unnatural it was for me to. To work, essentially, honestly, you know, to work on mergers and acquisitions that just happen to involve copyrights, you know, that was the kind of work I was doing. And 
And there were a few fun little things that came up in the law firm context, but but um, but by and large, it was corporate law with a little bit of media thrown in, and I was getting really um, jaded and bored and not happy. So so okay. moving over to the library nonprofit world was amazing. You right, know, so, it was amazing. Right, so you got farmed out to a library organization, the library organization in some way, right? Yes, okay. yeah, it what is. What well, it was the shortest, the shortest way to put it is I was essentially a lobbyist for big library, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. Like if, if, you know, if the oil companies have a, uh, you know, or pharmaceutical companies have pharma and they have an office in DC and their job is to keep an eye on all the issues that are relevant to big pharma. Yeah. ARL is just that for libraries, but since libraries are good um, and what they want is you know, good and right and true, being a lobbyist for them has a little bit of an easier, you know, it's easier to sleep at night when that's what you do. So what does your day look like if you're a lobbyist for libraries? So your day is interesting. And and that was, I'd say lobbying was actually, that was sort of, you know, half the job. And then the other half was sort of what you might call like advocacy lawyering. So like writing amicus briefs and writing kind of like filings and administrative proceedings. You know, that's where I think you and I probably first yeah. encountered each yeah. other was there would be, you know, the copyright office would have some inquiry into whether the Copyright Act should be changed in a certain way. Office and it's comments. not exactly lobbying. Right. Yeah, I they mean, would ask is, for comments. You get, you, they so... would have a little meeting. Exactly. So the, call, the Copyright Office, when they do things, they put out a call for comments to the public, and then anyone who wants to can um, respond. Um, and yes. like very important groups do it, anonymous people, regular people, um, all comment on whether they should change things or add a rule or something like that. And so it's very exciting and kind of thrilling because you're, you're engaged in this conversation, and then often they have roundtables and invite people to talk about it. Mm -hmm. And then they put out a report or they change the law or whatever, whatever they're doing. So, so that was part of your job, yeah. which is great. That was a big part of it, which was really fun. And this was a time, uh, you know, this was in around 2008, 9, 10, yeah. you know, when the dominant kind of copyright narrative was about big tech versus traditional content, right? And so... It was this question of whether and how the internet was going to grow and people on the internet were going to coexist with a copyright system that was written, you know, for books right. that were printed on paper. And libraries very were very interestingly positioned there. Yeah. 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 And very uncertain, confusing times. Like very, people were worried about lots of things. So, what kind of things did you work on during that period of time? What was the kind of subject matter focus that you? Um, yeah. Was that during like the pre-72 sound recording stuff and Orphan Works was still going? Was that all of that stuff? All yeah. of that stuff. Yeah. And also, so, and a lot of that, well, not pre-72, but the uh, Orphan Works, um, a lot of that spun off of the Google Books project. Right, right, right. right. And right. So, so for people listening... The Google Books project became a big deal in the copyright world because Google took in and copy, I mean, d digitize like everything without asking permission from anyone. Um, and the question, and then if I remember, were you at, um, I remember this was such an amazing moment when they were like, oh, 
and we're gonna and they said and they brought the libraries in right like the libraries yep. were like come and digitize our our works absolutely and, um and they were getting sued for fair use and mm -hmm. they were claiming fair use yes and then suddenly they were like oh and by the way we're gonna monetize it too right they're gonna do print on demand and it seemed like that was the moment with that that people got really upset like they, they the the authors were upset like some of the authors were upset but everyone was on board but then it was like wait what you know like there was a sense of is that what your recollection of kind of well it's an interesting question i guess i but some of that may have unfolded before i came along but my sense was and 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 you know once people decided they didn't like this thing they probably retroactively decided they hated it all along but by the time i came along there was a the the people on the authors guild hardcore author rights side the people who ended up actually suing yeah they they thought that google should not have the right to do anything right. you know there was not there was they didn't say like well you can make a search engine but you can't monetize it they said burn the search and you know burn right, the right. copies there was, right? that was right right and so that was a huge moment for fair use as well of kind of how far can fair use go um so and google was there was exciting exhilarating time um you know james grubelman had a big conference and like there was just a lot going on and it was very exciting and i remember um we were um summoned to google to talk about duration one time because they were trying to figure out if they should do that and it was like i don't know it was just a very like moment of like what is this thing going to be what is google going to be what is the internet going to be what is the role of books what's the role of libraries it was very yes. very vibrant and very exciting um that's all sort of settled now right like we're, we're in the kind of yeah but um tell me how you got from doing nonprofit at the law firm to where you are now and tell us where you are now yeah so it's a fairly natural evolution um you know so i was the law firm helped me transition over to working in the nonprofit, right and 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 fair use is sort of the sine qua non of copyright for libraries right like if there was no fair use there could be hardly any library activity other than i mean i suppose sort of buying and lending right which right. is not nothing but you know the minute somebody says you know i'd like to digitize this or copy it or anything fair use comes into play so so i had to quickly give myself a deeper crash course on fair use as part of my work for the libraries and then that's kind of sent me down this path of being really focused on fair use in my in my life so after i worked with the libraries for about uh five or six years i went over to teach at american university um and but what i was doing in teaching at american university was i was at a clinic i was in a law clinic where the students are lawyers and i'm their supervising attorney and our clients were people like libraries right so it was still a version of the same kind of work we were working for academics and mom nonprofits and little mom and pop enterprises and and giving them advice about things like fair use so it was still very continuous and then uh, my current job, uh, sort of, uh, for, you know, 35, 40 hours a week is at the University of Virginia, where I am the library. Well, my title is Director of Information Policy. And then I always have to say, you know, that's just a fancy way of saying I'm the library copyright guy. Uh, and 
that's basically doing at the local level in the in these beautiful mountain environs uh, what I used to do at the national level, which is, you know, advising people about copyright, including the library as an institution and its users as individuals, you know, so when someone's planning a research project or a, or an approach to a new class, they might come and talk to me and say, you know, I want my students to make a podcast. Right. What can they do? Right. right. Or can you come and talk to them and help them understand what they totally can do? Great. Um, or the library might say, uh, you know, I mean, UVA, by the way, was a Google Books partner. And my wife was, uh, ironically, my wife was working at the library while I was in law school here at the University of Virginia yeah. in 2005. Mm -hmm. And she was one of the people who helped run the Google Books so operation cool. <laughs> at UVA. So there was a <laughs> testimonial great dinner from conversation. Her. Oh, it's fantastic. So there was a testimonial by her right. on the Google Books website, like Holly Robertson at UVA says, <laughs> We're so proud to be a partner with Google. And then fast forward five years and I'm filing amicus briefs in the court case about that. That's so crazy. <laughs> That's lovely. I love that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so there's a lot of continuity. There's a strong through line. There. We're going to talk specifically about fair use in just a second. Do you see, like, how sophisticated do you think people, have you, do you see any kind of level of greater sophistication about copyright with people or at least being asking the questions now? Or do you think... How has time how has time shifted the conversation I guess in your career? That is an interesting question. Um, I think that over time, yes, there is greater sophistication specifically among folks I work with in the library and higher education realm. And you know, this I Part of me has to believe that because my goal in my career has been to make them more sophisticated. <laughs> yes, me too. Like, <laughs> over time, right, right. you know, right, right? Like I have been, I have devoted hours and hours and hours and hours and years and months, you know, trying to get the good word out about right. fair use in particular, right? right? And so I do feel like when I started, I would more frequently encounter misinformation or hyper-conservative, needlessly risk-averse kind of approaches. And that I think while no one is, no, you know, people are still, they have their own lives and interests and nobody's becoming a copyright expert, they, their knee-jerk opinions and expectations are more aligned with reality. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I am more inclined to talk to people who say fair use well that's like this right that i have and i can do it you know there was this that, that kind of orientation of thinking of it as a right that you have and that yeah. you can do things that are legitimate i hear that more um, than i think i used to i think i used to hear like fair use is risky you'll get sued right, right. nobody knows what it means i wouldn't yeah. i wouldn't do that and yeah. i think there's been a shift Interesting. In that way. Well, that gets us to kind of the, the the fair use conversation. So, for our listeners, let's quickly just explain what fair use is, and I have a bunch of questions for you about kind of the state of fair use at the moment. Um, for for dis full disclosure, our my copyright class is really looking at fair use on this multiple plane level, and we can talk more about mm -hmm. that. So they'll be listening to this as well. So I know they have questions they've asked me to ask, or that I know they should be asking, um, one or the other. Uh -huh. um, so we'll talk about that. But for those that don't know, because we're talking to quilters and crafters, um, 
how do we understand what fair use is? How do you explain what is fair use? Great question. I like to think of fair use as the part of the copyright system that ensures that the, the, the control that copyright grants to rights holders does not undermine the larger cultural goals and sort of social goals of the copyright system. And so it's sometimes referred to as like a safety valve. It's a, right. it's an exception to that copyright holder control or a limitation on that copyright holder control that says in this broad, you know, undefined, open-ended set of circumstances, we're not going to give the rights holder control over use of the works that they might otherwise control because what you're doing is the kind of thing we want you to do you know it is consistent with copyrights goals it is expanding you know expanding the realm of ideas it right. is you know making new knowledge accessible in new ways or whatever you know so at a, at a theoretical level right we right. can get into like the four factors of the case law but at right. the theoretical level that's the way i think of it well, and like the, going back to that copyright goals thing, I think people sometimes misunderstand what copyright is. How do you define, so we always think of copyright as I make something, it's mine, right? And then I get to control it. And that's the whole right. point of copyright is so that I can have control and I can make money off of it. Is Do you feel like that is what copyright, that, that's not just what copyright's about, right? That's kind of the byproduct of the system, not the goal of the system, Right. Exactly. That's exactly right. At least that's the way we think of it. You know, yeah. we um, Americans or right. certain, you know, American copyright wonks or, yeah. you know, copyright in the sense of the exclusive rights granted to authors are a means to an end. Right. You know, we 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 have a set of assumptions about how people will behave when they're given these exclusive rights, you know, and how markets will work. And we say, OK, if markets are good at getting people to do things, we'll give people who make creative works this way of participating in markets, and that'll give them good reasons to make more of the kinds of things people want. And markets right. will do that magical thing that they do and channel people into making right. more of the right kind of stuff and right. blah, 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 right? Right. Um, but all of that is toward the greater goal of promoting the creation and distribution and access to culture and knowledge, right? And right. and and it's interesting in the early, you know, at least in my 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 take is, you know, in, in the earliest days of copyright, there was a lot about knowledge and education that was bound up in copyright. The idea was, you know, what you're gonna write down is gonna be you know, what, what we're going to regulate the copying of and the selling of is going to be kind of like edifying. And so the early copyright acts have, you know, this sort of act for the encouragement of learning type, you know, language in the title, you know, the statute of Anne and the first copyright act of the United States. So it's about, you know, promoting the creation and sharing of new knowledge in particular, perhaps even more so than now we think of it as being about creativity and, right. and culture and art but um but it's about art and knowledge and so 
when a copyright holder says, well, what I'm going to do with my copyright is stop you from writing a critical essay about me. Right. Well, that's not consistent with what copyright's supposed to do. Right. And that's where fair use sort of saves the day and says, you know, listen, buddy, you know, you get to go out on the market and sell your book, but you don't get to stop other people from writing critical essays. Indeed. I always think about Saturday Night Live, right? That we want to make fun of things and we want to comment and criticize and without fair use, you can't ask permission of the copyright holder to be like, hey, can I make fun of you on Saturday Night Live this week? Like that's not that's not how it's going to work, you know? Um, so, yeah, right. I think that's that's fascinating. Oh, my gosh, we are struggling today with noises. So there is... Do you hear the noise? Can you hear it? I'm hoping it's I can't not, hear I it hope it doesn't get picked worth. up on the... Um, they're tearing up our street in crazy ways, but they don't let us know. Um, okay, so let's hope... I'm hoping that this works. We might have to do the little re-recording if it's way over, if you're okay with that. So... Um, so fair use. So we. So here's the thesis of my class, and I also want to talk about your new law firm. So the yeah. thesis of the class is that we, at this very moment, need to kind of take stock of what fair use is. And in part, that's because mm. of two things that are happening. One, the Supreme Court cases that are going to come down at some point soon. And two, the creation of the Copyright Claims Board. That these two things are really potentially mm -hmm. impacting on our concept of what fair use is. So let's start with the Supreme Court cases. There are two Supreme Court cases right now, one for copyright and one for trademark, and we're waiting to see what happens. What are your thoughts about, do you think one's about paintings, one's about dog toys? And so the question is, should we be worried? Are you worried? Uh, and the Supreme Court, when was the last time the Supreme Court looked at these kinds of questions? Because fair use is pretty well established, I think. Would you say, like, we kind of move along, it's kind of knowable, we can help people, and I feel like I'm on pause at the moment to sort of wait to see what happens. Do you feel that way? I, well, I do and I don't. I do, I absolutely feel the same way you do, that we know what fair use is, we know how to use it in many, many cases, it's, you know, it was shored up and solidified in the Google Books case. It's been, you know, just sort of, it's been doing the good work that it does now without any big earthquakes since the 1990s, you know, the early 1990s. The last time the Supreme Court gave a big landmark fair use opinion was in, you know, the Campbell v. Acuff Rose case. And that was the last time they had a fair use case that was about kind of art and creativity right and and uh, uh, we had more recently though and this is the an interesting you know wrinkle or an interesting you know facet they just did a fair use case in Google v Oracle and you know it's a it's it, you could sort of put it to the side maybe because it was about software um, but I do a lot of work on software too and and it was important. It was an important case about software, but more importantly, it it reiterated its commitment to Campbell and the sort of paradigm that Campbell laid out for what fair use means and what it's for. Um, and so, you know, one thing that I've tried to take some comfort in, um, and I'll, I'll I'll give some attribution to to Pam Samuelson for this, a professor at Berkeley, an amazing you know copyright scholar, you know. I, I, I've heard Pam say, you know, look, they just did Google. Like, they are not going to reverse 
Google, they just came down with this opinion that reaffirmed kind of the core, you know, rationale of fair use. And it just seems like, you know, the only way to imagine that they would change it would be, you know, you can like point at things like Dobbs and say, well, all bets are off, right? This court is crazy, you know, but copyright is in a hot button social issue, you know, like these, that's the other interesting thing about Supreme Court cases about copyright copyright is not a thing that supreme court justices care about you know they don't you know we got lucky that justice Breyer happened to have been you know a really amazing copyright scholar at one point in his career who wrote what i think is a pretty amazing article about copyright that is sympathetic to the views that i have about what it's for and and, and justice Breyer wrote that google opinion um, but he's gone now, and there's nobody on the court that I think is a hardcore copyright wonk and has any particular feelings uh, one way or the other. So I just don't see them overturning Google, or Oracle, or revisiting copyright in any grand way because I don't think it's important enough to them to want to upset the apple cart. You know, they don't have an agenda so, or a score. Two questions, to, and so. I know the no- there's noise on my side. Can you help us understand what Google versus Oracle was? And then second, why do you think the Supreme Court took this case? And the dog dog tour case. Why did they take that one? That seemed pretty settled law too. So I don't really understand what's happening at this moment. Yeah. So the Google case was about software. It was about specifically um, a kind of a kind of software uh, called you know declaring code. It was a way for software engineers, software writers to use a kind of shorthand to say, I want the machine to do this without having to write out all the commands that would physically, literally make the machine do this, right? And Oracle had written a set of, you know, kind of declaring codes, a kind of top level, like if you want to make a, if you want to add two numbers together, use some, right? Whatever, things like that. Um, and then Google came along and, uh, and took that high-level declaring code system, which was, you know, a fraction of a fraction of the total of the Java software code, but it was an important part. And they said, we're going to use that in our Android operating system. And that way, a software engineer who knows how to write in Java will also know how to write in Android, or they'll be more comfortable writing in Android. Um, and so... It was a case about whether that's legit, you know, is it okay? Is does copyright protect that stuff? And if it does, is it is is the taking of it the kind of thing that copyright should encourage or discourage, right? Um, and I think it I think the court might have taken it because it is such a it is such a kind of software specific question in a way. Like yeah. and so yeah. it wasn't obvious how to answer that kind of technological question based on its past precedents and yet it was important and so maybe right. it was worth clearing up. It's so interesting um, because I think yeah. about that case and I think, what if it had gone the other way? And that would have meant that that bit of code you would have had to get a license or someone would control the ability to decide who builds upon it. And I think that's what's so interesting about fair use is it it really is about regulating who gets to control whatever it is that it's about control mechanisms, right? And like one person or one company shouldn't control how we talk about something, how we use sort of functional aspects mm-hmm. of it. 
Um, but yeah, you, yes. you, every fair use case you think, well, what if it goes the other way? What does our world look like? And that one seemed a bit, yes. you know, that's a very different world. If um, that means Google, you have to make up a new language if you're going to make up um, Android, right? You can't use that um, in really interesting ways. Yes, exactly. Um, and, you know, it, it, it gets to the, that case was a very, you know, it was a, it was a nice one for someone like Justice Breyer to come to um, because it does pose that kind of policy question about competition and like fairness in, in a, in a competitive commercial marketplace and like who deserves to control that or what does that mean for the consumer? if somebody controls that, which is, you know, a more utilitarian kind of right. approach, which is, is that utilitarian kind of social policy, competition policy framework is really comfortable and familiar, I think, for somebody like Justice Breyer. And, and, um, and it was, uh, I think, it came out the right way <laughs> to, to my hearing. Um, uh, because um, because he saw those policy implications that you're describing of like well if it comes yeah. out the other way what does that mean for people who want phones right. you know <laughs> like not not nothing good right and these always implicate more than just software right that's the whole way the law works so it isn't just like well is it going to mess up software it's going to mess up everything right if you if you start to think about that okay so I know there's probably you can hear the noise um, what about the Andy Warhol case and the dog toy case because that's crazy so tell me what you're thinking about this why what are they and why did the courts pick this up and what are your thoughts about so, it yeah the warhol case um i'll start with the one i know i know fairly well i i confess the dog toy case i had not paid much attention to it until very very recently um and this this gets to our to my to the law firm that i just opened up i, I paid attention to it because i noticed that the mpa had filed an amicus brief the motion picture association um and on behalf of you know partly documentary filmmakers saying you know um that the the dog toy case could be harmful to the documentary film and that that definitely perked up my ears so but i'll get back that's to what that makes me so i love i love ip because we talk about dog toys and documentary filmmakers and the Motion Picture Association all have opinions about dog toys, which is brilliant, I think, and so it's lovely true. about our world, you know? Yes, it's so true. It's so true. And, and, and you know, I'm about, you're about to hear me try to minimize Warhol. <laughs> <laughs> but it's very hard to minimize anything in this world because it's true. Everything, everything uh, touches everything else. And, you know, like even in the Google case, for example, there are, there are a couple of lines in the Google case that, that I want to elevate into the like canon of fair use greatness. And they have nothing to do with software. There's a there's a part where Justice Breyer in talking about how do you how do you decide whether something is transformative, which I'm sure we'll get deeply into um, in a minute. But you know, tr transformative use is really important to fair use, and it's got something to do with how you think about the different purposes of the original work and the new allegedly infringing activity or work and in that in the context of oracle v google which is uh, ostensibly about this really narrow little thing about calling code in java justice Breyer says well 
if we look at purpose too narrowly, we will endanger in broad swaths of very important core fair use activities such as teaching and research. So we have to look more closely. And I just wanted to put that on a billboard and hang it outside my house. Like, because of course, in the world where I work, that, that sort of is a kind of, that's the Supreme Court saying, when you're thinking about whether an activity is fair use and it's part of this core universe, like research teaching that is meant to be part of the protected sphere of fair use, you have to be careful and not be too glib when you ask what is the purpose for the for the transformative test right you kind of have to look more closely and be sympathetic to the to the user um to me that's huge and and it does so we can follow that thread into the warhol case right so in the warhol case um it is the, the quick and dirty version is, you know, we, you have Andy Warhol, we know who he is, we know the kind of art he makes, and he, he did his thing, um, his sort of screen print it and write on it and, you know, up the contrast, etc. He did that to a portrait of Prince that had been the artist Prince, you know, Prince Rogers Nelson, rest in peace, rest in power. Um, he did that to a portrait of Prince that had been taken by kind of an iconic professional rock and roll photographer named Lynn Goldsmith. And when he did it in the first place, he did it in collaboration with New York Magazine or no, uh, Vanity Fair. Yeah. And yeah. he did yeah. it in collaboration yeah. with Vanity Fair and Vanity Fair paid a license to Lynn Goldsmith saying, we're going to use this portrait as a reference for an, for a, for an illustration we're going to commission. So here's a, here's money to you, so that we can then use your your image in an illustration as a as a reference photo, and then Warhol made like twelve, and they printed one, and everybody was happy. And then cut to Prince dies, and Condé Nast, the owners of Vanity Fair, go back to Warhol's estate. Warhol's now dead, and they go to Warhol's estate and they say, hey. Remember that Prince image we got from you back in the day? Could we get one? Could we get another one? Were there more? And the estate said, oh, yeah, <laughs> there were a lot more. Um, here, look at these 12 and pick your favorite one, and we'll, we'll figure out a price, right? Lynn Goldsmith had no idea about the second transaction until she saw the image in the Condé Nast magazine. And... She was not happy because the first time she got paid and the second time she did not. Um, and that's pretty understandable. <laughs> and that's part of why this is a hard case. You know, this may be one of those, you know, bad facts make hard cases, may make bad well, law I always thought kind of it was kind of a stupid right? case in some way because it felt like a licensing case, not a fair use case, right? Like, what was the license with Vanity Fair? Why didn't she know it was Andy Warhol? What did? Why didn't the Andy Warhol Foundation recognize they might need it? I mean, it all, and also it's two famous people. It's not like, you know what I mean? I mean, three, with, if you include Prince. I mean, the whole thing didn't, yeah. it felt like it was mucking with fair use unnecessarily. Because it felt, and that Vanity Fair is the problem here. And they're never included in any of the lawsuits or any of the issues. And it's their fault that all of this miscommunication is happening. So that I always found really frustrating about this case. 
teaching it is because it's like yeah because there are other artists that use fair use and, and use it right you think about there's many of them mm-hmm. that use it that's not what's happening here he was it was licensed to like it was all this transactional stuff that went awry i don't know do you feel that way and then sort of what do you think is going to happen now i do feel that way i feel that way 100 percent. and i i that's that's a part of how I sometimes try and hope and hope that the impact of this could be minimized. That is, it may be, you know, look, it's hard to say that your work was, you know, is a transformative fair use in light of all of the very specific scenario in which it was sort of born and first published and so on. Right. And not many other people are going to be in that particular factual scenario and smart people can avoid it and so if this doesn't come out our way it's possible that the impact could be small because maybe it's only when people are so dumb that they they get into this situation with licenses and you know sort of you know the other thing that's 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 really interesting and maybe unique about this maybe is you know not only is there this web of licenses and this history, this deep history that everyone involved should have remembered and should have thought twice about going forward in the way that they did, it's also the case that in a fairly straightforward way, Warhol and Goldsmith are competing in the same market in this context. You know, because Goldsmith, I'm guessing, saw the picture and said, well, you know, A, I didn't get paid like I did last time, but B, they could have just used the original, you know? I sell my portraits to magazines to illustrate stories too, and I want them to use mine, not his. And that's not necessarily going to be the case with a lot of, like, appropriation art, you know? Richard Prince, right? Like, he's a famous appropriation artist, and Sometimes he appropriates from other artists and, you know, he's fighting those battles in court. But, you know, Marlboro, from whom he most famously appropriated early in his career, he took these Marlboro cowboy ads and turned them into gigantic, gorgeous, you know, kind of reproductions, cutting out the ad part. And it's just a cowboy. Marlboro doesn't sell fine art for millions of dollars to you know, the museums that Richard Prince sells to. Like, there's no competition. There's no there's no argument about any kind of unfair substitution. The kinds of things, again, going back to our, our, our discussion about markets and fair use, you know, if and copyright, right? If copyright is meant to sort of allow someone to go out on the market and make a living, Marlboro's fine. It's not, you're not interrupting Marlboro's attempt, you know, Marlboro's normal market, but you know, Andy Warhol arguably was intruding right where Lynn Goldsmith deserves to be. And so that's a little harder too. you know, that makes this one a little harder. Um, help, help us understand what you mean by transformative. Can you help us understand what the role of transformativeness is in this case and just in, in, in fair use in general at this point? I can, yeah. And uh, by the way, I just got one of these little Outlook things reminding me I have a one o'clock call, okay. so okay. we may have to reconvene and continue. Okay, I, I that's have a feeling we have and a lot I have more like, to talk about. Uh, well, we can figure out trans- transformative in like two seconds, which is, and then because I have like a bazillion questions I want to ask you, we can do like yes, no. <laughs> yeah, that's I love it. I, I have zero. I am I am not at all afraid to say things. Uh, you know that I probably shouldn't say. Um, 
So transformative in two seconds. A transformative use is one that uh, uh, takes an existing work and uses it for a new purpose relative to its original purpose, um, creating new value of the kind that copyright means to promote. Um, uh, and, you know, the new purpose can be, um, can be aesthetic, it can be commercial, it can be, you know, I think it needs to be interpreted fairly broadly. You know, I think from, from case to case, what does new purpose mean can change. But I think the, the, the heart of it is, you know, in some ways you can understand transformativeness as the opposite of cheating, you know, the opposite of superseding. Going back to like the very first fair use case in America, you know, Folsom v. Marsh, you know, a superseding use is one where, you know, you're sort of intruding, you're, you're using the work, you know, you're using someone else's work to try to do the same thing they did to avoid the drudgery of working up something new, right? But a transformative use is something new, and you're using their work for something new. I like sort of the, the recent Met case about taking a photograph of, um, was it Van Halen? And then they had a, um, a guitar, like the, um, the, uh, they were using it to talk about guitars in an exhibit, and it wasn't really about the same thing that the photograph was. Um, it's a really good example of that, right? It's just totally a different reason for using the photograph, and it's within a co- different context. And, and if it, a, a museum had to get permission for all those things, it would be kind of impossible. Um, so again, thinking about the Google Books, same kind of thing, um, to be able to index it. Okay, ready? Um, fair yes, use index. Do you like it? It's, um, we'll talk more about it on the show, but it's a, it's a resource at the Copyright Office. Uh, law students made and like have, do you use it? Do you like it? Do you care about it? Do you, is it irrelevant? Don't know. Don't uh... care. I don't use it much. Yeah, because you know it's fine, you know it's all. That's right. Um, uh, <laughs> your law firm. Um, tell us a little bit about that, and then I have one more question about copyright and shops and uh, patterns before we go. So we want to make sure we get that in. Um, tell us about your law firm and who are your clients, and if people are listening out there, like how do we understand what role you play in our world, um, and if they should be calling you and all that expenses and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> Great. Uh, so the law firm is me and my partner, Peter Yazzie. Peter is like my mentor um, and, and a, a lovely friend of mine. And we it's Yazzie Butler, PLLC. Usefairuse.com is our website, which now exists on the Internet. Um, and it's a law firm that is about counseling people to understand and take advantage of fair use. We don't litigate. We don't go to court. If somebody is threatening you and you want to know, you know, uh, and you need to be defended, we can't. That's not what we do. We're not litigators. We're not we don't we're not people who who know how to litigate a case. That's that's not our background. But we do provide advice and consultation for folks who are in the business of needing fair use in their professions, right? And so, and 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 very specifically, the, the the core and the vast majority of our work is in the documentary film world. Um, and so, the way we can work in that in that context is, a filmmaker comes to us with a film, they have incorporated all kinds of material that they didn't make, you know, clips from the news, 
examples of media, you know, other people's movies, all kinds of stuff. And we help them figure out which of those things they should go and license and which of those things they can include without a license and, and rely on fair use. And then really crucially, we write an opinion letter. And based on our opinion letter, they can get an insurance policy. And that insurance policy, if someone does sue them or send them a nasty letter, the insurer, just like car insurance, uh, the insurer will manage that conflict. They will take it over, they will defend you, um, and they will pay any settlement that results. I love it. And I, totally, so, yeah. I totally love it. Um, we're really trying to think about, we should chat with you more about something like that, but for small craft entrepreneurs, um, sort of that kind of small, limited, helpful things because we feel, I imagine you felt this way that there aren't resources out there that are doing what you're doing and that that's needed. Is that right? A thousand percent. Yes. Yes. It's, um, there is no access to expertise and those mechanisms like insurance, some kind of affordable way to, to formalize understanding and managing risk and make it so that people feel comfortable and they spend a little bit of time and a little bit of money on understanding their risk and managing it. And then they can go on and do their work rather than having a sense that like, well, I can spend no money and take a chance at having a massive lawsuit and being, and you know, and just be really scared or I can not do my work the way I want to. And, you know, and, and those are the only two options, you know? <laughs> So yeah, I, I really I love this um, this practice we have in documentary film, and we're we're we it, it has expanded to television and podcasts, and there are increasingly fiction films or narrative films that have reality based elements that rely on fair use. So those are those are sort of other places, um, but the the insurance thing seems to be unique to film, and especially unique to documentary film. Super interesting. Okay, so again, again, I feel bad about the noise. Um, so shops, uh, quilt shop has patterns. People come in, they try to um, uh, reverse engineer patterns, or they think they can just copy the pattern, or they want to take a picture of it. Is that fair use? Like, the, oh, that's the biggest question I get answered. Is like, can I just take a picture in a book of it? Um, I'm in a shop. I don't want to purchase the pattern. Interesting. I mean. This is where I, my ignorance about quilting is going to be really apparent. So I, I mean, I assume the pattern is, 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 is essentially telling you how to, what, yeah, how so to, you, how to you've play. got it right. So the first thing I think of is, is the pattern protectable or not? Is it, yeah. is it protectable or not protectable? And sometimes it is, and sometimes it isn't. Um, but there is this notion of, can you walk into a shop, take photographs and reverse engineer a pattern? Let's start with that. Like if, and when does, like, let's assume it's protectable by copyright, that it's not just a general kind of, you know, basic quilt that's not protectable because it's been in, everybody's made that same pattern for years, um, hundreds of years. Um, right. Can I go into a shop, take a photograph, make it for myself from it and, or sell it on Etsy? That's always the next question. Can I sell it on uh. Etsy, you know? So, I mean, this is where I, this is where actually, you know, my instincts and, and proclivities may be a little different from some of my friends in library world. 
I'm I'm a pretty hardcore devotee of the the approaches I've been describing about transformative use and the purposes of copyright and so on and and to me that would lead me to the answer no that that's not a fair use because you know even though like you're just privately using it at home you know and so on like selling that book to you is the thing that copyright is meant to enable that person to do you know you are the intended consumer um and if the pattern is protected by copyright big if for all the reasons you mentioned but assuming the pattern is protected by copyright then that's you know that's a lost sale that's like the paradigm case of infringement you know it's 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 like saying you know i just want to i just want to take a camcorder to the movie theater and record the movie so that i can watch it again at home you know well sure like that would just be you at home but it's also exactly the thing that they want to sell you later on and that's what copyright protects for them so yeah i would i would tend to say that wouldn't be a fair use i'm sorry i could be persuaded I'm, no I, I think i agree i think it's um it's interesting moment um with technology and the availability of copying makes things a little complicated for the average person like i can do it why isn't it legal um, but it yeah. just because you do it doesn't make it legal. Right? Well, that's exactly right. And in a way, that's where the libraries have been for decades is is feeling kind of frustrated that, you know, we have the technology to scan every book in the library and make it available to people, you know, online. Why not? You know, and that's been a hard we've been it's been the core question of library copyright since like 1950 because some version of Xerox was trying to sell us before the 76 Copyright Act. You know, Xerox and other copy photocopier companies were saying, you know, buy one copy and then you'll never need another copy again because we will make it possible for you to turn that copy into all the copies you'll ever, you know, you know. And the technology is there, but the whole point of copyright is to stop you from using it in some sense, right? In some cases, in order to make it possible for the copyright holder to make a living or whatever. Well, I so insanely adore you, and thank you for all your time. I hope on my side it isn't too noisy. Um, and um, thank you so much. I can't wait to see what your um, firm does, and I'm always excited about what you're doing. Um, and I just, it's an honor to have you here for the hour um, to chat with us about um, fair use. And you must come back once the decision is, is bad, because we have to talk about it once it's here, because um, it's going to be a me. thing, and I, you have to come back and talk to us about it. Please bring me back. And I should fanboy out for a minute about you. I, I want to say how thankful I am that you had me on here. And to say, you know, I've been a huge admirer of you since uh, I think the first time I encountered you was at the Copyright Office Roundtable on 72 Sound Recordings. And you and your students had the most reasonable, well thought out, completely right and true and good proposal. And it got just shredded by industry and no one in the room wanted it because of course it was like a reasonable public interested approach that would ha that would have kind of served everyone just enough and no one else in the room was happy about it because of course we all wanted to have everything our way completely oh, that's so really i feel I, it that's such a nice nice thing to say i remember um and then i'll let you go i remember um I was on every panel because um, at that point, and the the, our, the um, 
RIA, the record industry, just kept bringing a different person to sort of shoot it. Yes. It was the most remarkable thing I'd ever seen of like, you know, I was just like this one little professor sort of talking about what the students did. And every single time there'd be somebody else to sort of try to sort of, it was, I forgot about that. That's very funny. But thank you for reminding, that's very sweet. That's a very nice thing to say. So. Oh, y'all were so impressive. You and your students. It was really, it was really remarkable. It was a good, you know, in a better world, um, we would be living in a 72 sound regime that had been designed by y'all instead of <laughs> I this love monster it. that we I have love now. I love it so much. You've totally made my day. Now I can just like, whatever right. happens next, it doesn't really matter. Um, thank you again. <laughs> I really do appreciate you coming on. And I can't wait to talk about um, Andy Warhol and, uh, and others things uh, soon, hopefully. All right. Let's do it. Let's All do right. It. Hold on. Let me turn Thanks, off the recording. Elizabeth. Uh, Brandon was amazing, and it was a total surprise that he remembered about, um, that was about a decade ago um, when uh, I represented the class at one of the copyright roundtables. So the U.S. Copyright Office um, puts out these calls to see if the um, what your thoughts are about new laws or if they're doing a study, and historically, um, I've had my copyright class, we kind of pay attention to it, and we... Um, we often submit to them, or at least we, we have a bunch of times, and then they have roundtables. And what we do with the roundtable is either I go on my own or students have gone with me in the past. And this was our first one, and it was about pre-72 sound recordings. So pre-72 sound recordings works that sound recordings before 1972 were not covered by federal law by this weird quirk. And so at that point, there was a study being done on whether they should be incorporated into federal law or not. And this was the first kind of gathering of all the particular players. And the major players were the record industry and the libraries, and they weren't quite getting along on what they needed to do with it. And so my, my class, we did a study. We looked at all the comments, and then we did a reply comment, and we talked about what we thought should happen in terms of the legislation. And that's what he's talking about at that point. And I can remember we stopped in D.C. on our way. We were off to do a big Europe trip with the family. And we stopped there uh, um, on the way. And it was this really weird experience where um, I had been put on all of the panels for like two days, um, which is unusual. Usually there's a whole bunch of people and there are different people are in different panels. But because our group, I was the only one there, um, I was put on the panels and the the people there, it wasn't the libraries, they were fine with me and our, our, our suggestions of what to do, but the RIAA, um, they weren't, they didn't like, and they kept like lying, what I thought was lying to the libraries. They would say, well, there's a taking problem or there's this problem. And I would be like, no, there's not like that. We didn't have that problem other places. And so, you know, I was just a young professor at the time. I was like, what? Sid was, eight at the time she was turning eight um so seven so little right little 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 and um it was like this big thing but it's funny when you like do those kinds of things like we went we came out you kind of feel like you're just kind of fish out of water and you're a little bit invisible and I feel that way a lot and I feel like the work that I do with the students helping like that's how just want to quote began it's a student project that began this thing of thinking through like how do we help and understand the issues of crafters and quilters and artists um, and getting them involved? That was one of our projects. And so um, I have to say it was one of the most heartening things to hear that like it mattered and that like his what he said was just so amazing. So anyway, it was nice to have that shared with you. And 
brings back a lot different part of my life um, but not that's all the same so now pre-72 sound recordings are part of the law and we can talk about that at some point and what actually occurred um, and we still sort of engage in issues and questions and and this year um, my copyright class is looking at fair use so we're looking at the state of fair use and and really in this moment of change as you said the there was the Google versus Oracle case that came down fairly recently and now these two other cases one that's copyright and one that's trademark um, we're really in this moment of like is fair use the stable thing we think it is or is it changing and we will check back with Brandon um, soon um, but that's kind of what we're talking about is this moment of change and understanding sort of is the continuity is it going to change a bit what role does this this case about Andy Warhol play in how you and I interact with fair use on an everyday basis and we're just kind of waiting to see what happens so anyway I don't usually sort of comment that much at the end of um, an episode but I just wanted to say that it was a pretty big moment and it's nice not to feel invisible and it's nice to feel like the work you do matters um, and that people notice it um, because I really do care about um, copyright and creativity and uh, entrepreneurship and and supporting um, those that are the the regular people and that was what why we what we were there for um, to represent it's just the regular people who might want to use a sound recording from 1927 and and would the laws um, let them do that Um, so that's it Um, I hope you enjoyed this episode and welcome to um, Just Want to Quilt a research podcast out of Tulane University Law School it is our season 2023 season and look at us we are continuing to do this it's awesome 